You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The European Parliament is caught in an apparent corruption scandal that would impress FIFA. Peru's new president proposes early elections as protests against her installation turn deadly. And Morocco's national airline organises a Doha airlift ahead of Wednesday's semi-final. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Barbara Serra and Marie Leconte will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll speak to Mark Galliotti about his new book looking at Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine and the wars that preceded it. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily and I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Barbara Serra, the journalist broadcaster, author of the documentary Fascism in the Family and Marie Leconte, the political journalist and author. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Uh, Marie, first of all, it is that time of the show. If by any chance someone is listening to this who doesn't know quite what to get for that relative who they know to have an interest in recent online culture, do you have any <laughs> suggestions? It is amazing you're bringing this up, Andrew, because as a match. <laughs> fact. Uh, what are the chances? I know. My book, uh, Escape, How a Generation <laughs> Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, is available in all good bookshops. Amazing. Uh, Barbara, do you have anything you'd like to flog while we're doing this? <laughs> no, no, yeah, but I'll get something ready for next year. <laughs> Please do. Um, we will start today's show proper with Qatar, which seems perversely determined to spend its time hosting the World Cup by diligently ticking off things we definitely didn't want to happen. We should also note, before we push on too much further, that Qatar denies absolutely everything. But Belgian police have arrested four people, including the Greek MEP Eva Kaley. The four have been charged with corruption and money laundering and the allegation appears to be that they had trousered considerable quantities of cash from Qatar in return for services rendered. Does somebody want to do a Captain Renault impression at this point? Um, are we able, first of all, Barbara, to think of completely reasonable explanations as to why an MEP or associates thereof would have, it says here, 600,000 euros in cash about their person? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> so not even vaguely reasonable explanations. I mean, obviously, this is, um, you know, I have no empathy with those involved. Terrible for those involved, but terrible for the European institutions. Terrible for the centre-left coalition that mm -hmm. this, you know, she, that one of the people involved is one of the vice presidents of the European Parliament. In fairness, there's 14 of that's them. That's quite a lot of them. But, but still, you know, that's still a, a high position within the parliament. Uh, it reflects terribly on, on on the parliament in general. I mean, specifically uh, the the, the centre-left coalition that she's part of, but, you know, European politics um, in, in general. And I think it really, the thing that really struck me, and I hadn't realised until I started reading into this today, is that not all European institutions have the same ethics authority. So, for example, from what I understand, uh, when it comes to ethics and attention to these potential corruption, the, the Commission, for example, has much stringent, much stricter, more stringent rules than the European Parliament. So, obviously, this needs to be properly investigated. Mm. I think charges have now uh, been pressed. I mean, it's not just her. There's quite a big Italian link as well with MEPs and former MEPs as well. But I was really surprised that not all European institutions shared a, a sort of common independent ethics 
ethics authority. And and I think the first step that should be taken, you know, regardless of what comes out of this investigation, uh, is that 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 step to me seems pretty obvious. Murray, this whole thing is weird at a number of levels, and there is a great deal we do not yet know, obviously. The MEP in question has definitely been saying nice things about Qatar in various public fora, but I, for one, had only noticed that when I looked them up after reading of this story. Had had you noticed that a given MEP had been out there trying to say that Qatar was basically all right, really? Um, I had not, and I was delighted to find today that Eva Kiley uh, actually hailed Qatar as a front-runner in Labour rights, uh, which obviously <laughs> is... <clears throat> is what it is, is, is what I will say on the topic. Um, but then, you know, and, and I think, you know, at risk of being slightly cynical, it reminds me a bit of the House of Lords, because the saying in British politics is that if you want to keep something secret, you say it in the House of Lords, because no one will ever find out. And I kind of feel that Brussels is quite similar in that respect of, you know, a lot of those debates, nothing, I think it only ever makes the international news when something especially stupid happens. But then, you know, point proven, even this had not quite broken as a as a story in the mainstream so no again and you know obviously assuming it really was Qatar behind this it's been quite I don't know it's been quite the feat I think between this and the amount of scrutiny on its treatment of migrant workers on LGBT rights on rights of women etc I'm not quite convinced it's been the sort of masterclass in PR that they wanted it to be, really. Barbara, what do you think? And obviously, you know Qatar very, very well. You worked for Al Jazeera for many years. So actually, I would say, I mean, yes, I worked for Al Jazeera for 16 years. Al Jazeera English is an international news channel, part of the Al Jazeera Mm. group. Um, I like to think it was independent. I'm very proud of its journalism. It is obviously financed by Qatar. So Mm -hmm. that is the the line. I have to say I made a lot of effort to stay out of anything to do with the Qataris because I'm a journalist and because I actually think, sorry, I don't mean to launch into a PR speech about Al Jazeera, (laughs) but I do think that there is a need for voices that aren't just Western and what we call the international. So, but believe you me, you know, I spent 16 years looking at myself in the mirror every day and kind of weighing the pros and cons and thinking, okay, is it still worth it? And and it was. I left in April, but but for other reasons. So listen, um, so I am in no way uh, defending the Qataris. I think what this is, uh, it's just really worrying because, you know, especially we're sitting here in the UK and we could think, well, MEPs, you know, whatever. No one really, like, like you say, no, by your own admission, we hadn't heard uh, what she said, but it does have an impact. Qatar absolutely have been going on, on a PR trip. I actually wrote a, an article for my newsletter where I think that some of the attacks by the West on Qatar and this World Cup mm. were... I use the word like hypocritical in some ways because I do think we have to remember that, yes, Qatar has it, and there's a million issues with Qatar, the migrant workers' rights, and many others as well, allegations of how we got the World Cup. But it is the first World Cup in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. You know, we can attack 300,000 Qataris, but it means an enormous amount to 300 million Arabs, as we are seeing now that Morocco is doing well. Having said all that, it's not just that the PR is a disaster. You know, it's not just about PR if they are found guilty of trying to corrupt you know, some of the highest levels of, of EU institutions. And I think I think more widely when it comes to the EU, I think we just have to be really careful about foreign influences in general. But this would be a, an awful example. It would reflect really badly 
not just on the World Cup, but on all, you know, all my Arab former friends, of former colleagues and friends who are so excited about the World Cup. And that's what makes me so angry, both at the European parliamentarians who have done this and damaged the European institutions that they should be, you know, raising up and that actually are important for 500 million Europeans. And then all the sort of Arabs or Muslims who are so excited about a World Cup in the mm. Middle East. And then this happens. And this is just an excuse. I mean, you know, we don't know all the details yet, but it's not looking good, is it? We will be returning later in the show to the Middle East's specific excitement about this World Cup. But just finally on this story, Mari, and again, we reiterate, nothing has been proved. Qatar denies everything, etc. I can't get past the question of if you had the basically bottomless resources that the Qatari state has at its disposal, as we can see from we look at the various things they've bought up to and including... Uh, the necessity well, the stadiums and stuff for staging an entire World Cup. Why would you bother bribing an MEP who almost nobody had actually heard of until she ends up in the news for being bribed? I, yeah, no, I, I found it quite puzzling. So I think the detail I specifically enjoyed is that they allegedly uh, bribed a former Italian MEP by offering a holiday worth €100,000 to their relatives. And I have so many questions about how you can possibly spend 100 k on a holiday. Is the holiday a year long? But no, no, okay, but, but then, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a corruption specialist, um, so I, I don't really know. But I, I mean, clearly you could argue that it, worked because you know they do have the world cup and actually people are still watching and actually there's not been i would say as widespread a boycott as there could have been i suppose mm. so may maybe it's working but then again i've never really bribed anyone to my slight disappointment now feeling a bit of fomo oh but, I, I mean uh, i i have but it was it was it was it was one of those please let me across this border kind of things and and, and a great deal less money than 600 grand was involved there was an issue about visas though mm. i think there was an issue about visa free travel for qataris to the european union there was meant to be a vote next week within the European Parliament. So whether this was a direct That'll link, be a fun one to watch. Uh, yeah, no, no, they've, they've, this might surprise you, but they've cancelled it. Um, so obviously she was speaking specifically about workers' rights, but I think that may have been... It's something else. Again, we don't know the details, but there was certainly this vote that was meant to go ahead. Well, let's look now at Peru, which has a new president. This in itself is not unusual to the extent that, and I checked, all the jokes about installing a revolving door on the government palace in Lima have been done. Dina Boloate is Peru's 11th 21st century president. Of the previous 10, four are either in jail under house arrest awaiting trial or fighting extradition. Two were impeached and removed, one of them after six days in office. Another shot himself when police attempted to serve an arrest warrant and President Boloate's immediate predecessor, Pedro Castillo, was also impeached and removed after trying to sack Congress before it sacked him. Um, Murray, you have you have been to Peru one entire time and are therefore the resident expert uh, at, at this table. Um, Castillo did have an extremely narrow win in 2021 over Keiko Fujimori whose father is the one of the aforementioned presidents who is in jail, a bizarre man whose life story I do commend listeners unacquainted with it to look up. Um, is, is it possible to scrape together much sympathy for Castillo? I mean, he can claim he was elected, but trying to sort of stage a coup d'etat against your own parliament is, um, it's a bold move. 
It, it is. It is. And it's worth a shot. Um, <laughs> but what, what, I mean, you know, if you look, at obviously he, he was only president for 17 months. And um, and it's not quite a case of everything was going really fine. And then, you know, he just went mad suddenly. Like he cycled through over 70 cabinet members in those 17 months, which, you know, obviously I'm, I'm no expert, but I was, I've never been president. But I would say that is too many cabinet members in 17 so months. He's trying to give everybody um, a go. Well, it would, and that—that's socialism to me. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I don't really. I, I remember, I think, the relief in you know, kind of South America when he won over uh, Fujimori. But yeah, no, clearly, I mean, I have to be entirely honest and say that I did tune out slightly after this, going, "Oh wow, nice things can happen. How lovely!" Um, and sort of blinked, um, and then everything had gone terribly wrong. Uh, Barbara, slightly counterintuitive take on this. I'm not sure if this holds water. I haven't really put that much thought into it. But on the one hand, this looks like just utter chaos, uh, continuous utter chaos in Peru. But is there an argument that what we're actually seeing is extremely strong institutions working as they? are supposed to. I always think it's generally kind of a good sign when a former or current president ends up in the clink. It, it does rather demonstrate that, yeah, the law is the law. I mean, within reason, we'll see how it develops. I mean, obviously, there have been clashes and, and people have died. Um, I think what it shows is that was huge um, dissatisfaction with almost every faction, <laughs> mm. almost every part of the government. And it's interesting how now the new president, Dina Boluarte, uh, she was sworn in on Wednesday after Pedro Castillo was impeached. Uh, she's now asking for early elections after she had said that she would stick out the rest of his term. Now she wants them in two years and she's proposing constitutional reforms to achieve, you know, the words we always hear, a more efficient, transparent system of government. But there isn't much detail into what those reforms would be. So look, I think it's great to have the institutions because at least you have a framework to turn to when things are escalating. And in this case, they're escalating into violence, which is terrifying. Um, But Ultimately, there is obviously something there that isn't working at all levels of of government. Mm. No, I I, I would agree. But also, I think quickly, we do have to remember that in 2020, Peru uh, had uh, three different presidents over a single week because of Congress. So is it a case of the system working well or the system arguably working a bit too well and maybe people (laughs) being able to get carried away in in a way that is maybe, again, that, that does not lead actually to stability and accountability, but just chaos? This was an argument, though, or a variation of this argument was made about this country earlier this year for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I was just thinking no, that. But, but, but seriously, people, there were a couple of American commentators pointing out that you can't do that with a US president. You can't just simply, you know, have their own party railroad them because they've decided they're a dud. There's a whole thing you have to go through which almost certainly won't go anywhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also the role of the monarch here as well. You, mm. know, you never want to make it act that way. But there is a... Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there's some things that are meant to, you know, that you're meant to turn to when things escalate. And again, I mean, it all sounds ridiculous and, and a lot of the machinations uh, do seem to be uh, far-fetched. But, you know, when it escalates into violence, uh, then it, it becomes terrifying. And so the strength of institutions is key and we'll see how it develops here in Peru. Um, no, just on a very quick point, because I think that was only found out uh, in Britain really recently, talking about British politics. It is incredible that when Boris Johnson looked like he was going to maybe call an election, despite you know, in, instead of kind of having to resign, what happened is that the palace said, oh, well, if he tries to call Buckingham Palace, we'll just say the Queen can come to the phone. <laughs> and, and that's how it works. And so he can't call an election. Like, literally, I think that was Sebastian Payne's book uh, released recently yeah. that revealed that. And yeah, well, what, what an amazing way to run a country. Yeah. There are, it's, I'm not really sure whether it's been conclusively nailed down, but, and I won't go into detail for fear of 
putting our entire listenership to sleep, but during Australia's constitutional crisis of 1975, um, there is a fairly widely held uh, supposition that Buckingham Palace embarked on exactly the same tactics. It's just like if the phone <laughs> if the phone rings from Australia, don't pick it up. She's out, um, and then and then, <laughs> she and, and then the she phone. doesn't have to make a decision. Um, Marie Leconte and Barbara Sarah, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February prompted widespread surprise and bewilderment, but perhaps should not have. It was hardly the first time that Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, had deployed Russia's military in the service of his weird imperial hubris, often on exceedingly spurious pretexts. Across his decades of dominance of Russian politics, he has bequeathed hefty evidence of his means of waging war and his reasons for it. All of which is assessed in a new book by Russia analyst and frequent Monocle 24 guest Mark Galliotti. It's called Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. I spoke to Mark earlier and I began by asking whether, as some have suggested, Putin is being somehow steered by something peculiarly Russian. It does seem to me that actually the last form of acceptable racism is to treat all Russians as if they're essentially proto-fascists and delighted to see Ukrainians being being harmed in, in inventive and horrific ways. I think it is very clear that the majority of Russians, although when surveyed, they will say they generally support the conflict. Firstly, they do so because they're being told that this is a very different war, that this mm. is indeed a war against, against Nazis, but also because they live in an increasingly totalitarian society in which if someone gives you a call at home and says we're doing an opinion poll, you know mm. the answer that you are meant to give. And we should remember that tens of thousands of people came out to protest against the war at the very beginning, even though they knew full well that they were going to be arrested and face not just the potential for a prison term, but being beaten or worse in the back room of a police station. And indeed, a lot of horrific things did happen. And yet people still came out to protest. No, I think that this is, obviously it does tap into certain elements of Russian culture that does still hanker after that sense of mattering in the real world, that is willing to believe some of the toxic propaganda that the regime is putting out. But in some ways, that very toxic propaganda is in itself, I think, a signal. You do not have to shout quite so loudly and invent quite so many nonsenses if the population is already supportive. The very fact that they don't shows that actually even the Russian people you know, are, are recognised as not being the kind of Russian people who Putin thinks they should be. You make the point in the book that Putin is is not a soldier, he's a spook. But nevertheless, when he became president, he did understand that the Russian military was in a fairly wretched state. And he did prioritise rebuilding it and trying to make it, uh, I guess, more, well, as, as powerful as he believes Russia should be. Have we been learning in the last 10 months that he did not succeed in that endeavour at all? No, I think we, we can see that there, there was change, there was reform. I mean, let's mm. be honest, when the Russians went into Syria in 2015, the general consensus of Western academics and above all the kind of military think tanker types was that Russia would not be able to sustain this. That, you know, within, within a few weeks or months, Russian planes would be falling out of the air because of bad maintenance and they wouldn't be able to refuel them and everything else. And yet the Russians did. What I think Putin misunderstood was, first of all, that in fact... Even reformed militaries will have all their kind of Achilles heels. Mm. And absolutely, the, the Russian high command appreciate that, which is why they have a, 
you know, pretty bureaucratic, but nonetheless significant process for what happens when they're going to go to war. The interesting thing is the degree to which Putin ignored all of that. He imposed his and his spooks view of the war on the generals. So in some ways, what happened was that the Russian military did not get to fight the kind of war that it had spent 20 years and huge amounts of money preparing, training and arming to fight. And I think that's the key problem. It was this terrible mismatch. I mean, and obviously Putin's dramatic misunderstanding of Ukraine. But nonetheless, even if we look at military reform, it wasn't that it hadn't happened. It's that what progress had been made was squandered by Putin willfully not using it the way the generals would use the military. If we go back a few decades or a good few decades prior uh, to the chronology your book describes, does World War I teach us anything about how these current events might potentially end uh, for the people in charge in Russia? I know no comparisons are perfect, but you have sort of ineptly led, poorly equipped, dubiously motivated Russian army sent to a war it doesn't entirely understand by a high command which may have lost touch with reality. Is there anything there? Yes, it is. I think a, a worthy parallel of drawing with all the caveats mm. that you so rightly sketched out. Indeed, I mean, one could actually move it a little bit further, the 1904-5 Russo-Japanese War, mm. which was a war that, I mean, actually the interior minister at the time, von Plieva, had said, you know, what Russia needs is a victorious little war to bring it all together. And in many ways, Ukraine was precisely intended by Putin precisely to be such a victorious little war and the capstone of, of his career. And not just defeat, but catastrophic and humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War led to the so-called 1905 revolutions, which are actually a whole series of local risings. But to move on to, on to World War I, yes, I mean, if you think about it, look, I would suggest that the Tsarist regime was already brain dead by, say, 1911. Mm. But the point is, these regimes often have a certain momentum and a certain capacity to hang on together until they have some kind of shattering blow. And obviously, World War One was that for, for the, the Tsarist Empire. And it led to the point where a collection of the, well, I can't really call them the great and the good, but let's say the powerful and the uniformed, got together in, in February by the old calendar, 1917, and told the Tsar, look, this is time for your last great duty to the motherland. You have to stand down. I think that although we're a long way from it yet, one of the potential scenarios for Russia is precisely that. Because we have a situation where, like the Tsar, Putin is commander-in-chief. Mm. He decided he wanted to be the sort of the, the person who actually runs this war because he thought he'd gain, gain the credit. And as a result, he takes the, the costs. And likewise, like the Tsar, Putin seems to have nothing new to offer except one more push. That sense of suddenly things will get better if we continue with this struggle. So I think that combination means that, as I said, although we're not there yet... We could see a rerun of the February 1917 days, which brought down the Tsarist Empire. Mark Galliotti, thank you for joining us. That was Mark Galliotti. Uh, his book, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, is out now and entirely recommended, like all Mark's books. Uh, you are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Barbara Serra and Marie Leconte. And let's look now at France and what one might like to think is a salutary lesson in the impermanence of political parties. The Republicans and their predecessor party, the Union for a Popular Movement, were once a biggish whoop. Ten years and change ago, France's president, Nicolas Sarkozy, was a Republican. It has 
has been downhill ever since. However, in 2022's presidential election, the party's candidate, Valerie Pekres, fell ignominiously short of a double-digit percentage share, and they presently hold just 62 seats in the National Assembly. Can a new leader turn it around? Um, Marie, uh, Eric Ciotti, for it is he, can he do it? Uh, no, probably not, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's what he, you know, and, and it's, it's been a great year for people um, who like losing, but then actually winning by default because Ciotti um, was actually lost to Valérie Pécresse uh, in terms of who would be the candidate at mm-hmm. the last election. Um, and yeah, so he lost out and now is the leader. So it's kind of the Rishi Sunak in Britain who <laughs> fell the contest and became PM anyway. Just, yeah. Why not lose? You'll probably win again by default afterwards because there's literally no one else. Or or to frame this in terms of Australian Olympic ice skating, he's basically Stephen Bradbury, the guy who won gold when everybody else fell over. Exactly. That that is who I was thinking of also. Yeah. Uh When are we not thinking of Stephen Bradbury? Um, Eric Ciotti, just to follow that up, Murray, uh, his headline thing seems to be the the immigrant bashing. Um, Is there much difference between him on that front and the more enthusiastic immigrant bashers of the Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour variety? So I think, um, and this is maybe a not take to take uh, uh, to have about France, but I think it's about class, actually. So I think what we saw in the election is that the the more working class racists went for Le Pen, but the really posh racists went for Eric Zemmour. Um, So so is is, is he after the middle class racists then? So I think that Zemmour will probably not run again. It seems unlikely. So actually, if he wants the upper middle class and posh racists, that would actually be, you know, that, that is a constituency that clearly is happy getting peeled up, you know, either not voting for the National Front at all whatsoever or voting for them would actually rather vote for, you know, a classier kind of racism. So, Barbara, the, the, the thing that I've thought, the well, the thing about what the implosion of the Republicans and the Socialists in France has made me think about is why that has happened in France and why it hasn't happened in other countries which whose politics is dominated by two great parties, whether that's the United Kingdom or the United States or, or even Australia, where there's a, a two-party system which seems absolutely set in stone. Um, well, I would say it's coalition governments and I would say compared Comparing France to Italy, it's the existence of more far-right parties, whether it's Marine Le Pen's or whether it's Giorgia Meloni and her brothers of Italy who are mm. actually now in government. Now, you could argue that the UK had the Brexit party. I don't know whether we would call them far-right. You could argue they've been incredibly successful, even though they've imploded because they, well, got they, 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 they got what they wanted. They got what they wanted. Um, so I would say it is more that, but I would... Th- I would think that the move of the centre-right ever more to the, let's call it, radical right and where extreme nationalism, sometimes nativism, very strong anti-migration sentiments are always a part of, uh, we are seeing that in a lot of different countries. Within reason, we're even seeing it with the Conservatives where a lot of language around immigration, for example, the use of words like invasion, is something that would have jarred even a few years ago. And when I'm looking at the French story, it's very interesting because I see echoes of Italy where Actually, you have three right-wing parties. You have Berlusconi's, which was vaguely a centre-right, and then you have two other what you could call far-right parties. And what's interesting is that actually people who feel strongly about immigration and very strong anti-migration views, if we look at the Italian example, tend to go for the person who is most 
to the right of mm. that. So, for example, we saw Maloney absolutely wiping the floor with Salvini, who for years was the standard bearer for anti-migration views. So it's interesting that La Repubblicana kind of, I mean, I don't know, we'll see, and Marie, you tell me, but whether they are playing the anti-migration card, but whether ultimately that is successful for them when you already have Marine Le Pen, who did very, very well at the last, um, uh, at the last uh, you know, elections, um, not the presidential ones. Um, but but, you know, where is that space? And are we seeing the erosion of the centre-right ever more in favour of more far-right parties? Um, so I think on a slightly boring structural point, my guess would be that, so obviously we know that Macron uh, can all stand again at the end uh, of this term. And we know that all the, basically, so you remember when he created En Marche at the very beginning, so people from the centre-right and centre-left kind of joined him. Um, since then, it is fair to say that the centre-left people have left and the centre-right people are still there. So I think that if En Marche wants to get uh, another candidate in for the next election, which I'm guessing they will, it is more likely to be someone who is traditionally from the centre-right. So I wonder, again, this is this is very much guessing, but if I were them, I think annoyingly that kind of makes sense because if they have someone who is even more obviously centre-right than Macron is or was, then the space electorally will kind of be on the traditional right that is not entirely fascist, but still, um, you know, still A plays footsie with fascism <laughs> under the table. Um <laughs> Just a final thought on this one, Barbara. If we look at Europe generally, there used to be in Europe, and certainly in the United States, a a conservative pro-immigration outlook. You you often heard, if you think back 30, 40 years, there is that, that, that celebrated, well, ironically celebrated now footage of, of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush contesting uh, the Republican nomination by arguing with each other over who could be nicer to undocumented migrants from Mexico. Um, even Boris Johnson and David Cameron have at least paid lip service to the idea that you know you you want immigrants, you should encourage immigrants, that immigrants are good for a country. Can the Conservatives still actually make that case and win elections, or do they now just have to be mindful that their base is likely to well, revolt? Look, we're speaking in the UK, and we all know that there's huge issues in this country right now because of a lack of migrants to do jobs that mm-hmm. they used to do before. So is there an argument for that? Yes. But then what you get into is the narrative of legal migration and illegal migration, uh, which a lot of people would find controversial, especially when we think of the boats either crossing the channels or, more to the point, crossing the Mediterranean into Italy and France. Italy quite recently had a massive spat over when, where an, an NGO boat full of migrants that they rescued from the Med uh, was going to, uh, basically was going to dock. Uh, so, no, I, if you ask me right now, I just don't think that that is an argument that any politician feels uh, strong enough to make uh, because people are scared, you know, in the middle of an economic crisis. And migration in general has changed. You know, migration around the world, if you look at the numbers of people that are on the move right now, it, it is terrifying. Now, they te- I'm not just saying terrifying for us as Europeans. I mean, in general, because of the huge pain that it's causing these people, they tend to stay near to the countries they've escaped from. But when we look at, it's not just conflict, it's climate change, and now that is exacerbating conflict. So I think that there is a double fear. I think a lot of people, the public in Europe, is worried because of the financial, uh, you know, economic crisis right now, but also because in fairness, the issue of migration is more pressing now than it was even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. 
Mm. And then my very quick point was going to be that I worry this is a vicious cycle of actually the right is not talking about immigration in a positive way anymore because they know their base has shifted. The left, in order to get votes back from the right, is also not really talking about immigration in a good way. Ergo, no one is making the case. Ergo, voters are becoming more and more anti-immigration. And the cycle kind of continues, which does not feel ideal to me. But yeah, here we are. Indeed not. Um, And finally, on tonight's show, we are a squeak over 48 hours from seeing a team from an African and or Arab country kickoff in a World Cup semi-final for the first time. These last few weeks must seem like the weirdest fever dream for Morocco, who have en route beaten Belgium, Portugal and Spain and now find themselves facing France. For any Australians listening, that would be like getting to the World Cup final by beating England four times. Morocco's state airline, Royal Air Maroc, is laying on 30 extra Casablanca Doha flights for people wishing to cheer on the Atlas Lions in person. Um... Marie, you are a French Moroccan. <laughs> what, what, wow. what, what do you do about this? You, you can't be one of those unbearable people, surely, who turns up wearing the half-and-half half scarf. Jesus Christ, no, of course not. Uh, no, no. what I think, you know, and, and this is a very smug thing to be saying in Britain, I realise that, you know, in England, actually anywhere in Britain. Um, so I think, you know, the, the French half of me, like, we're quite used to winning the World Cup. My first ever football oh, memory oh, was the, yeah, the, the 98 World Cup, and obviously we won the last one. So, you know, C- like when you've won something that means something, like the Ashes. Mm. No, no, so, <laughs> I'm obviously yeah, supporting Morocco, although I have considered actually calling my parents and be like, this is all down to Christmas presents. Like, what are you, what are you pledging to give me Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you on my back. <laughs> so, yeah. so Morocco until or unless they get turned over on Wednesday by France and then you would be LA France for the final? Well, no, so slightly awkwardly. I've not, like, technically I was not going to watch at all and I'm still not watching. I'm boycotting uh, the World Cup. It's only, and I'm still not watching, but I am supporting Morocco because, again, I did not think this would happen. So I probably won't care that much, whoever wins, if it's not Morocco. Um, Barbara, in, in Italy's absence, about which we won't gloat untowardly... Well, Italy but... did beat England at the Euros, and I actually... Which we do not talk about. Well, to, 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 I just can't just cherry-pick what two, you two, talk two, about. Two years ago. <laughs> get, get over it. The, the, <laughs> fact, the, 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 fact, the fact remains that Australia got further into this World Cup than Italy did. <laughs> that is true. Um, but you didn't beat England. Uh, well, no. <laughs> again, that... I thought there's just no need to bring this up again. Um, <laughs> this is all getting very nationalistic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's World Cups for you. But, but seriously, this yeah. is whatever happens on Wednesday, this is a huge deal for Morocco, isn't it? The, th- the thing I keep thinking of is that the, by, by glorious happenstance, shortly after I left Australia, I was backpacking around the Republic of Ireland in the summer of 1990 when they got to the World Cup and did quite well. Um, and it's not like Ireland, of all countries, had no soft power imprint or place in the world's imagination before 1990. But I was in Dublin the night they beat Romania on penalties and went through to the quarterfinals. And from that day to this, I have never seen such an eruption of just spontaneous human joy and suspect I never will again. Well, you might if you're in Rabat and they win uh, on Wednesday night or if you're in Doha. Listen, I totally understand what Marie says when she says she's boycotting the World Cup. This has been a hugely problematic World Cup. But again, I go back to the point I made earlier. Rightly or wrongly, it's the first one in the Middle East. And here we have Morocco, a nation that is the first African. It's funny how Morocco wears lots of hats. Mm. So it's the first African, first Arab, also first Muslim majority. And the thing that's really also struck true. me is how they pray, I think, at the beginning and at the end. Of they every, do, yeah. Which is very, very touching. And I was at Al Jazeera when it was announced that Qatar got the bid. And again, I know it's controversial. Believe me, I haven't you know, shied away from criticizing Qatar 
there. But I just remember the utter joy, especially in a lot of my younger mm. sort of male colleagues who just, you know, for one, because the Arab world is always in the news for dreadful things. Mm. It's terrorism, it's war, it's ISIS, it's just, you know, dictatorships. And for once, they are at the center of something wonderful. And it is still the World Cup and people get really excited. I love their, they've they've done a, a new version of the Viking Thunderclap. Am, mm-hmm. I, am I shown that I'm mm-hmm. a bit of a nerd? But like they've gone and, and then they shot. And I just think, you know, I mean, they kind of have the hopes of the global south on them. So, you know, no pressure, Morocco. <laughs> uh, but I think it, it's going to be wonderful to see them win this World Cup, I think would be amazing. And if the whole point of giving a World Cup was to Qatar was to, you know, sort of push the sport in other parts of the world, then maybe it would be a silver lining if they win. I would really enjoy if Qatar spent all this money organising a World Cup to be like, hey guys, we're like the cool Arabs and then Morocco just arrived. But they're all happy. I mean, in, I saw celebrations in Gaza, in mm. Baghdad. I mean, it's like, you know, I've had endless discussions about is there a pan-Arab identity? But actually, this is showing mm. that there is. So so I think the Qataris, I mean, I don't think the Qataris had any hope of ever winning. But I think in general, it's just, it's seen as like an Arab country. First of all, the underdog, no one expected mm. Morocco to do well. But, you know, a sort of Muslim majority, Arab, African country who, you know, has a shot at winning. I don't want to jinx it for them. I mean, Murray, it's often the case with international sport. It, it does turn into, I think, what George Orwell called war minus the shooting. And there's a certain amount of badinage of varying levels of seriousness uh, undertaken about various historical grudges and disputes being worked off on the football field. But those three countries Morocco has already beaten, Belgium, Portugal and Spain, there's an amount of history. Mm-hmm. But but France, that's... <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I realise that there's probably not a short answer to this, but is it possible to quantify what tipping France out of the World Cup <laughs> at the semi-final stage would mean in Morocco. You're, or you're, even you're, in you're, France. Are, are, you, are you just going to sit there and giggle insanely for about the next 10 minutes? I, 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 I think that pretty much says it all. What else do you want me to say? <laughs> Um, I, I think we're all aboard for the Atlas Lions then, aren't we? I yeah. think so. Yes, we are. Yeah. Uh, go, so. go Morocco. Um, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Barbara Serra and Marie Leconte. Also to Mark Galliotti, who we heard from there in the middle. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.